What's the purpose? Because God doesn't do anything without a purpose. God has a purpose behind it. There's a reason for this thousand years. And God wants us to begin to discover that thousand years. Of why is he doing what he is doing? Now some people could care less. And the reason that they care less about it, because really they care less about anything that God does. God is not on their radar. God's not on their mind. God's not on their heart. Uh, one of the reasons God gave us the Bible is to dig. Is to dig. Now there's that top surface, yes, that's there. And sometimes the answer is right there before us. Right on the top surface. But then there's others that you got to begin to dig. And you begin to ask the question. And you begin to read what other people begin to say about answering that question. And you begin to discover theirs. And as you are seeking, it's surprising how the Holy Spirit begins to speak to you. Sometimes we're fearful to challenge that which was done many years ago. A couple of weeks ago on WCRF, Elaine and I were listening to a program and I told Elaine 20 years ago that that person would have never been on Moody Station. All because of what he was declaring because in his declaration of what he was declaring, he was going against something that Moody has stood for for many years. But uh, the whole thing, as time has advanced, there have been some things that have changed. Scripture is a book, or the Bible is a book that continues to reveal itself if you're willing to dig deeper into it and to understand it. And really look at it. God will not hold secrets from you if your heart is really chasing after him. If your heart is really chasing after him. Allowing Jesus to rule for a thousand years is to prove what? It seemed to me that in Revelation 19, that would have been it. That would have been it. We, we didn't need to go to chapter 20 really, but 19 would have sold it all up. Because 19 was a knockout. We didn't need to go to round 2 or 3 or 4. Well, I'm talking about the fight between Ali and Lipson. We didn't need those other rounds. Because it was a knockout in the first round. And yet, there's a reason we go to another round. There's a reason we go to another inning. There's a reason we go into chapter 20. But in that 19, if you really explore it, you have to ask the question with 19, why the millennium? Is it just for Christ to show off that he can rule? Well, I think he proved that in 19. And we're just going to look very quickly at a couple of these things in 19, at the end of 19, to be able to help establish what's going to take place in this 20. And next week and maybe the week after, two more sermons, hopefully we'll understand why the millennium. Why the millennium? We're going to get in just a tidbit of it today. But yet, why is this millennium so important? In verse 11, Jesus is called faith and truth in chapter 19 of Revelation. He said, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Faithful and True. You can explore those words all over. Because Jesus Christ is what? Faithful. God is faithful. That's part of his character. Secondly, God says that he should not lie because he's what? He's not man. He's not like man, that he would have a reason to lie. 
But what is, I think, unique about this is this. God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to truth. Who speaks truth? God. He's not going to change truth to a way that it would just benefit him at the time of your judgment. He's not going to twist truth to be able to justify, in a sense, what punishment you're going to receive or what action he's going to take against your rebellion. Just as father-in-law, Mr. Stokes and I, we were speaking about a job and doing the job and, and so forth. And uh, we were both pulling back from our experiences. And uh, he was a top sergeant uh, for 20-something years in the Army. Uh, that's a grade level of seven. And um, he had many men up under him. And uh, while he was in Vietnam, he was sharing with me that uh, his captain gave him an order. After his captain left, he gave the men an order also. So when he got back, the colonel asked him, did you change the captain's order? He said, no, I just followed command. The last order given is what will be followed. (laughs) And with his position, he was able to change that. And then he asked the colonel, what do you really want? Do you want the trucks with the supplies of ammunition? with the supplies that are needed medically to get up front to the men or don't you want them to get there? And what I was instructed to do at first, as far as I was concerned, would hinder my mission of getting my trucks through to where they needed to go. So I changed the command some in order that my men would be protected and the supplies would get through. And we took the argument to this point. You always have to stay within the guidelines of military rules or the guidelines of the job, the guideline of what is being described. That's your safety. Because the moment you step out of it, your head can roll. The moment you step out of that, you broke the rule. And if you break the rule, there should be no mercy. Because you knew what? The rule. The thing with us that we have taught a generation always to look for mercy. Even with our kids, as Melvin was speaking today, about the word obey. We make it something big if kids obey. We give them this if they obey. If we give them that, if they obey it. Now think about the parable in Luke where, boy, the man went out and worked all day from sun up to sundown. He's a slave. But then when he comes in, the master says, don't sit down, don't rest. I know you've been in the field all day. Fix my dinner. And the scripture sums up in this manner. He was only doing his duty. And what we want to do is praise people and give them everything else just for doing their what? Their duty. You know. God isn't praising us and giving us rewards for just doing our duty. And we need to understand that. And we're going to really see that in the millennium, thousand year reign. That Boy, you step out of line quickly. You were, because it says sin was dealt with quickly. And he would rule with an iron scepter. He's going to deal with it very quickly. Well, we're accustomed to, boy, I do what I want to do. I can tiptoe over it and have one foot over here and one foot over there. There you're not going to be able to. And it becomes very strict. Why? Because Jesus is going to be faithful to his rules. He's going to be faithful 
to his guidelines, he's going to be faithful that every one of us walk in this manner, in this way. And we're not used to that kind of strictness. Because we're just used, I can do this and I can do that and I'm covered by grace. Well, grace is still going to be there. Hey. But the rules will be the rules and broken rules will not be tolerated. The breaking of the rules will not be tolerated. He's called faithful and true because he's going to be true to his word. He's going to fulfill every covenant and everything that he says. He's going to be true to it. Then it says, with justice. Now just think about this. You can't have true justice without truth. And you've got to have somebody who's faithful to truth. So he puts it, and I like it sometimes, the way the Holy Spirit puts God's words in order. If you're not faithful to truth, you will never discover truth or hold the truth up, nor will you hold your own integrity up, nor will you be honest about things. You will lie about, because you're not faithful to what? To truth. But when you're faithful to truth, you can rightly judge somebody else. Because what you're going to use is the facts that are true. And it says, he's faithful and true that he might judge. If he wasn't faithful to the truth, he wouldn't be able to judge. We could come up and tell him anything. We can blame it on anybody. We can make up a good lie. And some of us, even as Christians, we lie good. And the thing is, he's going to be faithful to the truth. And he's going to judge us. He's going to judge us. And it says, make war. But when people are not willing to be Obedient and are rebellious, he goes to war. He goes to war in order to uphold truth. He or he goes to war to prove that he's faithful to his word. I was always faithful to my word with my children. If I said I was going to whoop you, you got a whooping. If I told you you get five swats, you're getting five swats. If I told you you're getting three swats, you're getting three swats. If I told you don't go and I went away and you went, well, we just going to battle. My kids sometimes thought I was mean because they could get in the car. We did not drink in my car. You did not eat in my car. They did not touch a window. They never pulled the blind shield down. You say, well, you've been very strict. No, I was teaching a certain thing. You don't do without first asking. Because a lot of young people, you see them today, they feel they got a freedom to just do. They don't respect other people's property. They just act. And the assumption is that the person who owns it don't mind if you take it, use it, abuse it, tear it up. You know, but what I wanted my kids to learn at a very early age depend on me. So another rule we had about school: you never fought a battle at school, especially with a teacher. If the teacher was wrong, you come home and you tell me. You don't argue with the teacher. You do what the teacher says. I'll go to school and argue with the teacher. Hey. Your job is to go to school and learn. I'll argue with the teacher. I'll argue with the principal. I'll argue with whoever when it comes to my child, especially if you're wrong. You know. 
when the kids went to school, they had to read Mice and Men. I didn't want them to read Mice and Men because of the innuendos that were in Mice and Men and the profanity that was used in Mice and Men. And when I went up to Firestone and met with the principal, and uh, he shared with me was one of the required readings, I said, no, I don't even use the language that's in this book, so why would I allow my children to read this language? There has to be another book in this system that they can read that would be as equal, that would be considered good literature for them to read and report on. And he found another book for them. God in the millennium, it says Jesus will be their teacher. Now there's something important about that. Because see, Jesus is no longer depending upon the priests or the prophets or anyone else to teach. But who's going to do the teaching? Jesus. Why? He's giving the rules. He's going to enforce the rules. And he's going to be faithful to his word of what he has taught you. Now, in 13 it says, his name is the word of God. Agreeing back with St. John chapter 1, verse 1. He's called the word of God. The word of God is faithful. The word of God is faithful. You can depend upon it. Melvin was sharing this morning about how faithful the Word of God is, but God is also faithful in keeping His words and His covenants, and He will do what? Bring it to pass. Why? Because He's faithful to His Word, to His truth. He's faithful to it. So His name on His robe, and I want you to catch that word robe, because see, He comes with a robe. Who wears a robe but somebody of royalty, somebody of importance, somebody who's going to judge. It was somebody with a robe on that was important. The average person didn't wear a robe. That robe distinguishes it. And it says, He comes with His robe. It describes the material, white, linen, pure. No spots. A faithful judge. A truthful judge. An impartial judge. A judge that will deal with you what? Fairly. So in 13, he simply says, Boy, he is dressed in a robe, dripped in blood. Whose blood? His own blood. And his name is what? The Word of God. But when you catch 14, it's, 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 it's amazing because of what follows there next. It says the armies of heaven follow him. The armies of heaven follow him. Now, I want you to take notice of something. He didn't come to earth to try to raise an army. It's the armies from where? From heaven. You know, don't try to raise an army from among your enemies. (laughs) You'll never do it. But if he's faithful and true... He brings those with him that will fight on his behalf. Not so much to fight. Because the war of Armageddon, it's not going to last no minute, two minutes, a half an hour, half a day. That war is going to be over just like that. And he tells us why. But he... Take note that he comes with this mighty army. Then take note in 15. He says it in this man. He said, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Not individuals, but nations. Armies that come against them from nations. Just with his word. He strikes them down. He strikes them down. Just with a word. 
Now, we can't even begin to fathom that. We can't even begin to even acknowledge that. But he does it with his word. And Hebrew speaks about his word being sharper than what? A two-edged what? Sword. It's able to cut very quickly. Both ways. And then when you get into 16, he says, and I like this. Boy, I could see him robed out. Got his name on his jacket. Got his name on his thighs running down. Can't miss it. King of kings. Lord of lords. I'm king of all kings. I'm Lord of all lords. I'm master of all. He come with his jumpsuit on, dress suit on. He come to play or come to war, whatever you want to call it. But you can't miss him because he's the only one who got this outfit on. His name is written. The word of God. Lord of lords. King of kings. And then what begins to take place is just amazing. For it says, when we pick up in verse 17... He says, and I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in the midair. Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. It didn't take him long to slay It didn't take him long to kill. It didn't take him long to destroy. One of the habits that we have as people is putting God in our place. It would take time for us to get rid of a nation, to kill literally millions of people. It would take time for us to do that. But with God, it doesn't take that long. He just sends a tsunami and wipes out. You can't outrun it. You can't hide from it. And yet, death is left as the wave goes back out. And he says, in that verse 19, Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider of the horse, which is Jesus, and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet. With him the false prophet. And what you discover is this, that the beast and the false prophet are both thrown into the lake of fire. Now, earlier in Revelation, the beast and the false prophet was somebody that's mighty and strong. And nobody could stand against them. And here we see one who takes them captive and throws them in the lake of fire. What else do I need to do now? What else do I need to prove? I didn't knock everybody's chip off their shoulder. I didn't knock everybody out. What do I need to do? To show that I really am the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In 21, he just simply says it in this manner. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Now I'm going to give you a little hint of where I'm going and we'll talk about it later. But this has been in my mind. What happens to the children of these folks? What happens to the children of these fathers that went to war and were slain? 
A lot of commentaries will say those who entered the millennium were Christians. They never speak to the children of these fathers. Because all life is not killed at this point. All life is not destroyed at this point. So one of the questions kept coming to my mind about these children. I'll share it with you now. Maybe I hope to show you a little bit more because the scripture says that the idols were in their hearts. Because in the millennium, there will be no idols publicly. There will be no idol worship publicly. But just like today, you don't see people's idols really, the majority of people. But the idols are where at? In the heart. In the heart. And those idols cause us to worship something else where Jesus Christ is not first, but he's second and third. He's not preeminent, as Colossians says, that he desires to be preeminent first because something else grabs the attention. Something else takes his place. Something else becomes more important than he is. And that's an idol. That's an idol. And we have to do away with those idols. We got to throw them away. We got to get rid of them. And I think those children go into the millennium with a lot of anger. But yet, they're going to be able to see Jesus face to face and be taught by him. And you're going to hear me say this over and over again. God brings it down to where it's their choice. It's always our choice. It's always our choice to believe and obey God. Or it's our choice to set up our own idol and worship our idol, follow our idol, do what our idol wants us to do, rather than that which the Lord would have us to do. And he says, the rest of them were killed. So God shows his power. So why do I really need this thousand year period? For Jesus has already revealed himself. He really is the King of Kings. He really is the Lord of Lords. Who else could have done what he has done? Who else can speak and destroy nations? So he even shows the world his power and his strength. Something that they've never really seen before. And he does it personally because he comes and he performs it. He doesn't so send his angels, but he does it. Now, Satan is dealt with and somehow the question is, well, why wasn't Satan thrown into the lake of fire? Because Satan is going to deceive again. But it's not until the end of the millennium. But Satan is bound or restrained. So it says, and I saw an angel coming down in chapter 20. Verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Number one, I want you to take note of this. This is an angel. Maybe an ordinary angel, maybe an angel of some rank. But he is not at the same rank of which Satan is. If you remember in Jude, Michael the archangel said he would not bring a railing accusation against who? 
against Satan. Recognizing Satan's position, Satan's authority. And always remember this, authority always proceeds basically from God and God allows that authority to function and to act. And Michael the Archangel would not bring a rallying accusation against Satan. But the Lord rebuked him. Catch this little thing that is so important here. God told this little weak angel who made me have no rank, grab that chain and go bind Satan. God just gave that angel enormous power and authority to act above that angel who once was in charge in sin of heaven and his music and his choir and all the other angels. God just gave that little bitty angel authority to go and bound and bind restrain that angel who thought he had all kind of power and couldn't be stopped. How many of you have seen the movie Thor? There's a little thing in Thor that reminds me of this. Remember that hammer? Remember that big old, when, when his brother, they're in there fighting with all that? But he takes that hammer and seals it, lays it on his brother, and his brother's trying to get up but can't get up because that hammer is upon him. It says that the angel put a seal upon him and he could not move. When God seals something, when God says it, it's over with, it's done, it's complete. I don't care how much power you think you have, authority you think you have, when God speaks, He's the final word. And, and He puts that seal on Him. And Satan is restrained. He's not thrown into the lake of fire. Because He's going to be set loose after a thousand years. But see, man always has this thing that he's going to blame. We are good at blaming. If we're late for work, we'll give you a good excuse why I'm late. Usually the excuse won't be truthful. I got out of bed late. (laughs) Traffic was heavy. You know. You ever gotten behind one of them folks when you're in a hurry and they're going nowhere? Hey, you need to get where you're going, but you didn't count on that person doing what? Being in front of you. And it's just enough to have you running through the door trying to get to the time clock. Well, I, I got behind somebody this morning. He wasn't even doing the speed limit. Speed limit is 45. He's only doing 40. I couldn't get around him. If he would have did at least 45, I wouldn't be late. I got distracted. I lost time. I didn't know I was supposed to be here at 8.30. Well, you wrote it down. I called you and even reminded you. But you got distracted. And we use that as an excuse. I had to first stop by my mom's house because of this, this, or that. I had to stop by and see about this because of this, this, and that. Well, while I was on my way here, I know I was supposed to be here at 8.30, but since I was going past the drugstore and I had to pick up my prescription because when I go back by, it might be closed, we'll come up with all kinds of excuses and we'll play the blame game for doing everything from what God has said for us to do. In the millennium, 
there will be no blame game. There's not going to be any excuses. God's going to change, number one, the spiritual atmosphere. He's going to change the atmosphere. What we don't understand even today in our spiritual atmosphere is how much freedom God gives us to respect him, to disrespect him, and not even reverence him. And we challenge anybody to say anything about my heart towards God. (laughs) And yet, he's going to change the spiritual atmosphere. Because, see, you're going to really long for him. You're going to really want him. You're going to really praise him. You're going to see something that you've never seen before. You're going to behold him. And you've got to make a decision. Because, see, worship has the thing in it. Is it worthy? Is it worthy? And you're going to have to ask the question, is he worthy in what I see and what I'm hearing to really worship him? It's going to be a choice, a decision. He's going to change it from a imperfect atmosphere of people and to a perfect spiritual and moral environment. Now I think he's really talking there about spiritual leaders because spiritual leaders have so often let us down. And therefore it says that those who come with him, the old saints, and we'll talk about this a little bit further, that only people that's going to be in government, the only people that are going to be in rule, will be those that are really saved. Think about that. We can ask you during the interview, are you honest? Yes, I am. Do you have high standards? Yes, I do. And boy, we begin to look into your life and we begin to see what? Standards aren't as high as we thought they were. Your honesty is not all that it's that you're saying it is to be. You need to understand this. Pressure brings out the real character of a person. Sometimes problems are to show forth what kind of character you're going to reveal. Hey. And those leaders who are going to judge us with Christ, you're not going to be able to point one finger at them and say, well, I know when. I know what they did a week ago. All that's going to be removed. Well, you can't blame somebody else for your decisions and your actions. Is going to be totally removed. Evil will be dealt with swiftly. Why? Because evil has a way of influence. Scripture also oftentimes talk about yeast, that when yeast goes into the dough, it just spreads and it right. Evil has a way of influencing. And the only influencer in the millennium will be Jesus Christ. So you won't be able to blame that. So-and-so influenced you. Somebody else misled you. Somebody else deceived you. Somebody else did this. Right now we say, boy, we're influenced by demons. We're influenced by Satan. We're influenced by this. And we're influenced by that. Even the advertising on TV influences us. And our friends influence us. And God's going to remove all the influences. And he's going to deal with sin very quickly. Now, not one of my questions. Just follow me, because I think so now when you're in Scripture, you need to ask the question, be the investigator.
if the mind thinks the wrong thing, not the action, but the mind. If the mind thinks the wrong thing, would God deal with it right now? See, that's, that's going to be the difference of culture today and that culture tomorrow. See? Because God is not going to allow any influence of evil or sin to be there. For that at the end you won't be able to say, well, I was influenced by this or I was influenced by that or I was misled by that. See? He's going to remove all that. Because the only influence that's going to be there is Jesus Christ. To remove the blame that people may have against God. You allowed the deceiver in my life. You allowed Satan to reign. You allowed Satan to whisper these words. You allowed Satan to send his false prophets. You allowed Satan to deceive me. The whole issue sometimes is that we get in this thing of Satan did it. Go with me to Romans 7 real quick. Let's just look at a couple of scriptures real quick. Romans 7 and verse 11. He says, For sin seized the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me. Now, Now, boy, sin deceived me because of the commandments, the commandments are telling me to do this, but sin is tempting me to do the opposite of that. So I don't do this, so I don't blame me. I blame something else. See, one of the biggest things that men will not do is stand up and say, I did it. And when we say, I did it, I did it because. You ever heard that? I did it because. No, no there, there is no because. And he simply again, he says, For sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandments deceived me. And through the commandments, Put me to death. Because Satan knows if you don't obey God's word, what happens? Death. If you don't receive the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens? Death. If you don't live by God's word, and this is something that is very evident in our time today. When we don't follow God's word, we self-destruct. We self-destruct. Run over Second Corinthians eleven thirteen. Second Corinthians eleven thirteen. Uh-huh. He says. Is it three? Okay, three. That's it, three. I'm wondering why I'm looking at 13. Three. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpents, cunning, your mind may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotions to Christ. Here's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. You can be acting very sincere and very devoted. But Paul said, I'm frightened for you because Satan can get in there and deceive you. Ephesians said, don't even give Satan what? A foothold. Don't even give him a foothold. Don't even give him a crack of the door. You know how sometimes you got the chain on the door 
and you'll open the door to try. Sometimes don't even open the door because, see, them four little screws in the wood may not do what? If the person really push on that door, they're all the way in. And sometimes we give Satan that little crack and he pushes and he's in. Go to 1 Timothy 2.14. 1 Timothy 2.14. That's where I want to go. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Okay, Adam, you're off the hook. You were not deceived, Adam. And that's true. Adam was not deceived. Why? The rules and everything were given to who? Adam. Adam. Adam had a job of teaching who? Eve. But Adam knew. And sometimes I just wonder in myself, what would have happened if Adam would have corrected Eve right there? Maybe they wound up on Dr. Fields. Maybe they wound up on Jerry or somebody, you know. But what would have happened if he would have corrected him right there? Now, go to 1 Corinthians 15, 22. We're going to look at verse 45. And I'm giving you all some of my imagination as I go through Scripture some too. You got the first Adam. You got the second Adam. The millennium, if I may say, is that representation again of the Garden of Eden. For Isaiah and Ezekiel both says there will be no hunger because the land will produce food, multiply. It will all be a time of prosperity of everything. Here we have the first Adam in the Garden of Eden. Here we have the second Adam in the millennium. The first and the second. In verse 22, let me get my eyes focused in the verse. For as in Adam all died, so in Christ, that second Adam, all will be made alive. Now go over to verse 45. So it is written, the first Adam became a living one, being. The last Adam, referring to who? Christ. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. A life-giving spirit. Now, in closing, let's go see this blame game that we've all been playing. And I want you to recognize something a little different too between the first Adam and second Adam. Because see, the first Adam said, that woman you gave me. Loved the woman. Desired the woman. When he first saw the woman, wow! This is for me? This is mine? And then she did it. You gave her to me. See, if you wouldn't have never put her in my life. See, you should have put that big old elephant in my life. You should have put that in my life. There's something that I say that comes out of the book of Kings. Everything wrong with our culture lies at the foot of men. Everything wrong with our society lies at the foot of men. 
Everything mixed up and confused about women is at the rule of men. Our homes are messed up and divided and tore up because of men. That men will not take the responsibility that God has given unto them. And in the millennium, men will have to shoulder that responsibility. Can't get away from it. Can't blame this person, that person. Can't blame wife or children. So in Genesis 3.12, you hear him say it in this fashion here. Let me get it there. The man said, the woman you put here with me. Now, whose fault is it? Not even so much the woman, but God, you're at blame. You gave me this woman. If you wouldn't have given me this woman, I wouldn't be in the problem I'm in today. So it it didn't stop with the woman. He went all the way back to God, blaming God for what God did. You gave me. And what Adam was smart enough to recognize is this. The woman didn't get there on her own. Somebody else had to put her in his life. And God did that. And he blames God. One of the things I'm going to be shooting for is to help you to see clearly. You can't even blame God for your decisions. You can't even blame God for rejecting Jesus Christ. That's your decision, my decision. When you come down to verse 13, he simply says this way, The woman said, The serpent deceived me. The serpent deceived me. So, so God gave the rules. God gave what was supposed to take place. God even told them what would happen if they did disobey. And yet, they stepped outside the rules. Now, what's different between the garden and the millennium will be this. In the garden, God shows grace and mercy. He clothes them. He still provides for them, but he does put them out of the garden, which is the punishment. In the millennium, that rod of iron will hit you so quickly that you will be removed. Because the only influence in the millennium will be Jesus Christ himself. Sin will not be allowed to influence the heart of man. Because there's a reason for that. Man has to see his own sinfulness without blaming somebody else. Go to First Peter five eight. First Peter five eight. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. God removes the one who wants to destroy you. God removes the one who wants to rob all the blessings of God from you. God removes the one who is like a roaring lion wanting to go around. And we can use the excuse. As Flip Wilson coined, the devil made me do it. It's, it's removed. It's gone. And what's going to come so true in the millennium? The only one responsible for sin is me. Is me. Is me. 
I'm responsible for the sin of my heart. I'm responsible for the sin of my mind. I'm responsible for the sin that harbors in this body. I'm responsible. Elaine is not responsible. And I can't say, well, I hit Elaine because she made me do it. Don't don't that even sound foolish? That somebody's just going to make you hit them. Somebody's just going to make you cuss them out. Somebody's just going to make you do... No. It's here. It's here. And what God is going to reveal to us in the millennium, because he takes away the blame game, puts us back into a spiritual, moral environment. We're going to talk about that a little bit more too because we think, boy, if the environment's right, that's man's thing. Now, I don't want to play that down to him. Yes, we need a good environment. Just like a plant needs a good environment to grow in and so forth, sunlight, rain, all the things that it needs and so forth. It needs that, but that's not everything. But man has made it everything. So man thinks, boy, if I give you enough food stamps, I give you enough housing, I give you enough this, if I give you enough that, you will somehow just do. No. And God's going to do away with that. Because it's all in here. That we have to deal with. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word and what your word reveals to us. And Lord, you open the door by saying unto us, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there may be someone and maybe some of us thinking, well, I haven't sinned. Well, to your standard and to your way of thinking, maybe you have not sinned. But from God's value system, from God's standards, from God's principles, you've sinned. I've sinned. And God is not asking me to govern myself by my own rules or my own standards or my own value, but His. That I would get to know His. The psalmist says, How will a young man cleanse his way? No other way but by knowing the Word of God and hiding it in his heart. No other way but knowing the standards of God, the statutes of God, the principles of God, the values of God, and hide those things in our heart. Father, we are your people, and Lord, in these next coming weeks, help us to sit at your feet and learn. Help us to devour your word. Help us to be able to put your word together that we might see what you're doing and what yet you're going to do. And Lord, help us to come to the place to understand the heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it but you, O God? Who can fix it but you, O God? Who can heal it but you, O God? Who can take the stony heart out and put a heart of flesh in that it might be for you? That it might desire you. That it would run after you. It would want you. And that you and you alone would be more than enough. Lord, work in us in these coming days as never before. Open our eyes through your word as never before. 
I thank you, Lord, for all the other books out here. I thank you for all the other great authors out here. I thank you for the insight of others, O God. But, O God, I thank you, Lord, for the insight of your Holy Spirit and of your word, O God. 